folks, and welcome to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and today I'm delighted to have as my guest a young lady who has a number of things to tell us that I think you'll find extremely interesting, Kavitha Reddy. Welcome, Kavitha. Hello. Glad to have you here with us today, and let's do as I do with most of my guests, start off with where you're from originally, a little background with family, and, and from there. Okay. Well, I think this might be really shocking to some of our local viewers. Um, I'm actually from here. I was born and raised in McMinn County. Um, I went to Narada Elementary, K-8, through and then I graduated from McMinn County. And after that, I went off for higher education, but my parents still live here, so I've always felt like I never left. Like I would come home on the weekends and holidays and it was kind of just my, my getaway. So um, I have my parents and then I have a younger brother. And then those are the only core family members that I have in the area. My dad's family's actually from India. And then my mom's family lives in mostly Cleveland, Tennessee. So. And I have known your dad for umpteen years through my medical career and Certainly enjoyed working with him, and I think, as I understand, he's still going, I believe. He's still going. Um, he actually had, had somewhat retired. I know they can't see on the podcast, but there's air quotes there. Like, he's <laughs> he's retired in the sense that he had kind of stepped away from some of it, but he's, in the last few months, been covering some shifts, and from what I understand, he's back in the groove, so he may never retire. I never retire. I hear that quite a bit. Tell us now, Kath, from the school here, you, uh, as I understand it, you went to law school. Mm -hmm. And take us through those steps, why <laughs> the, the profession of law and, and what's transpired since then. Well, I have a really profound and deep explanation for why I chose law. And that's because when I was in second grade, I used to make my dad take me to school on his way to the hospital. And the school wasn't quite open yet, so I would wait until they opened the doors, and then I would go down to my second grade teacher's classroom, and I would draw on the chalkboard, because I just really enjoyed pretending to be a teacher. And I got caught by Donna Cagle, if you guys know Donna Cagle. She was the third grade teacher who was right next door, and so she captured me and made me sit in her classroom until my teacher, who came later, she came and rescued me. Her name was Miss Hicks. And so she came in, rescued me, and she asked me why I always wanted to come down there. And I would help put papers on the desks and, you know, just all the, I was the little teacher's aid pet person. <laughs> and I told her, I was like, I want to be a teacher. And she sat me down and she said, well, you know, I think that's great, but I really think you should do something big with your life, like be an attorney. And I said, okay. And so from that point on, I decided I was going to law school. Wow. So that's kind of how I ended up in in that mindset of, okay, I guess I'm going to be a lawyer. But as I got older, I think my dad always kind of thought that I would take over his medical, his nuclear medicine business. And I actually really liked the science of it and the, the, the idea of it. I just didn't really see myself working with patients in that way. And so I started college with the intent of doing nuclear medicine. And my junior year of 
of college, I took a political science class to fulfill a requirement for some other part of this degree I was in, and I loved it so much, so I decided that I had always wanted to go to law school, so that's what I would do. And you attended law school, mm -hmm. and was there a point at which you decided what type of law to practice? I, like we do medicine? I always wanted to do family law. I just, I love divorce. I think it's one of those mm -hmm. things that in criminal law, you end up in a situation where the person you're defending or the person that you're prosecuting, they may or may not have done it, and you still have to do your job whether or not you, you know, agree with it. And with family law, I feel like your goal is to just get the best outcome to make everyone as whole as possible so that they can move on with their lives. And in most divorces, there's not one person that's at fault. You just get a whole set of circumstances that you have to navigate, problem solve, figure out how to best work through it. And so I just really like that, the idea of the problem solving. And I mean, I feel like you make a big impact on people who are coming to you in like the worst days of their lives. And, you know, it's scary and complicated. And a lot of people just, the idea of getting divorced is the most terrifying thing for, for them. So I just, I really got a lot out of it. And when I was in Chicago, which is where I went to law school, I worked at a domestic violence legal clinic. And so I did a lot of divorces out of these domestic violence cases. So then it's even more rewarding because you're saving these people's lives in a lot of ways. That's an excellent point. And so how long were you in the practice of law? Um, so I graduated in 2011. And I came back to Tennessee with the intent of doing divorce here. But what I did not know, and I think this just comes from not having lawyers in my periphery, I just, I went into it blind. You don't really get to choose what you practice in a lot of places. If you're in a bigger city, obviously you can be a little more selective, but typically in law, you do what comes to you because you have to pay mm -hmm. the bills. So if I did a property dispute for you and then your kid comes to you and is like, I need someone who can do custody. You might refer me to them just because I was a great attorney, not because I have any sort of expertise in this area. And so that's kind of what I was running into was, you know, well, can you do this for me? And it, it, there's a saying in law that you become an expert in what you do. And mm -hmm. so you start digging through these complicated issues and I just, it was taking me away from what I wanted to do. And a lot of the divorce cases in certain areas are just debt. You're arguing over who's going to pay debt and there's not really a lot of problem solving in it. So I just, I didn't enjoy it as much. So I actually took a job with the city of Knoxville, which is where my first job was. I had interned there in college and it was the community development department. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a big allegiance to just government. I worked for the state senate for a while and so I went back to community development and worked for a sustainability grant for a while and then in the mix of all this my parents bought the movie theater and so that's where we are right now but um, I practiced for a couple of years off and on. I did some guardian at Lytham work and some just random things here and there. Now a big step. You and I have talked about that before to go from the legal profession into, uh, you know, essentially uh, entertainment mm -hmm. type stuff. 
how how did you arrive at that decision? Was it because the parents bought the theater, or did they twist <laughs> I, your arm, not, or what? I'm not sure there was a decision made in that. It just oh. sort of happened. I um, Originally, my mom tried to bribe me and say, maybe you could just do birthday parties on the weekend, because I used to say if I could have picked any job in the world, I would have been an event planner. I mean, I feel like at 18, it's a really tough time to try to make a decision for the rest of your life. Like, in small towns, we don't even have exposure to half of the jobs that are out there. I ended up doing an internship with a PR firm when I was in grad school before I left for law school. And I almost had a moment of maybe this is what I want to do because I enjoyed it so much. But prior to that internship that I took on a complete whim, I was just trying to find something to fill the time while I was doing my master's. And I was like, no one ever told me that PR exists. Like, I, I know PR exists. I just didn't know what it entailed, like the kinds of things. And it has a similar feel to the law, like your problem solving for your clients who get themselves in trouble. How can we spin this in the best light? And um, so I kind of was there. And then I do just love the law. Like, I just, I loved it. So when the theater started my dad had been to one movie in his entire life and was trying to open a movie theater and I was a recreational movie goer I'm not an avid movie goer I would go with my friends but I mean I couldn't tell you the first thing about it I know you get your popcorn you go sit down and you enjoy your movie that was it I couldn't tell you what was on the walls in the auditoriums or you know how far the lights went down any of that stuff but the studio contracts that you have to sign to get the movies are like documents that have been crafted so tightly. And so my dad would send them to me to kind of review these, these documents. So it, again, kind of got me back into that problem solving mindset of, you know, I quickly figured out there's literally no negotiation room with, with Mickey Mouse. He's, they're not budging. But at the time you didn't know that. So. I kind of started on the back end doing business stuff and um, procuring random things that we needed that my dad didn't know about, like the butter machine. He did not, he didn't know we needed butter for the popcorn. <laughs> yeah. I think his exact words were, do people really eat butter on popcorn? Oh <laughs> so, you know, it was that kind of situation that it just sort of snowballed and my responsibilities just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I think I intended to always just get it set up and then hand it off to somebody else but we're not set up yet so you know eight years in i still haven't been able to get to a point where i could comfortably pass it off so so eight years yeah wow. we opened in 2015. that has sailed by mm -hmm. i didn't realize that and then but but step back that's that's amazing in an area and and dad buying the theater mom dad this was kind of just on a whim. He mm -hmm. just thought he'd like to have that as a sideline business because uh, he was busy. He's busy. I think that the story that he tells is that when the other theater, because, you know, originally we had two, two right. screen theaters, right. the one that I don't actually remember when the car might closed. I think either I was in college or I had already started going to like Cleveland because that's as far as our parents would let us drive. So right. we thought it was cool to go somewhere else. So that one had closed years before, mm -hmm. but the one that existed was an, um, an independent theater and it closed in 2013. That left us with nothing. Mm -hmm. 
except the seasonal drive-in. And so dad felt there was a need in the community just because there isn't anything comparable to that. So he bought it with the intent of renovating the existing two screens and just having a little tiny small theater in a tiny small town. But he hired a consultant who told him that it is incredibly difficult now to be viable to show first-run film in a two-screen theater. Mm. Back in the day when everything was on film, you could keep the same movie for two months because those prints were incredibly difficult to get. They were hard to ship. They didn't last very long. So you would have two movies and it was fine because you weren't going to swap them out of the projectors and all of that. Now that things have been digitized, it's a hard drive. So they can send you, I mean, they won't, but they could send you 100 movies if there was 100 movies out. So you really need more options screen-wise. So what started as just a quick little renovation project turned into this, <laughs> this five-screen theater. Wow. Now, take us through, because I have zero knowledge, as I've told you, and find it fascinating coming sit in your theater, the modern stuff, the technology. When did they kind of move uh, in wherever, Hollywood or wherever, to this digital mode? So the digital prints really started recently. It's not been um, maybe in the last decade or so. There was initially a push from, and this was before our time, so I'm kind of just secondhand knowledge here, but the studios did a thing, I think it was called Virtual Print Fees, so VPF, or VP, yeah, VPF. So they did a thing where they basically subsidized the cost of upgrading equipment to digital because it was better for them as far as distribution. Okay. So a lot of theaters got locked into having to upgrade because they were forced into it. The studios just weren't sending film like they used to. It's heavy, it's expensive, it's easily damaged, hard to replace. So the studios kind of led this initiative. It just worked out better. And then over time, I think within the last couple of years, they've done away completely with the, they've paid off basically all the equipment. So these VPFs don't exist anymore. Mm. So I think there are maybe a handful of novelty digital, I mean, film people still out there, but I think it's almost exclusively digital funny story though there's a poster that you can't see on a podcast but it's behind Shelly's head it's a big hero six poster and that was the first movie that we used as a soft opening it was kind of interesting because Disney does not typically release older movies for things and it just so happened that we were able to get this because I think it was still maybe in theatrical release at the time but I didn't know what a movie looked like I had never seen it. We didn't, I mean, we were just installing everything. And the construction crew called me and they said, I think your movie is here. I said, okay. So I come over here and there's this like two foot square box that's this huge cube. And I'm like, hmm, okay, I don't know what a movie looks like. I open it and it's film reel. I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I going to, I don't. I don't know what to do with this. We don't have film projectors. And I thought, well, maybe that's the only way that movie comes. I don't know. I literally know nothing. And so I call our film buyer completely freaking out. And she said that that was a mistake and the <laughs> that it shouldn't have been there. It was just 
you know, I'd never even seen a film reel before in that magnitude. And you couldn't sneak oh, you it can't. away from her and keep it for a collector's <laughs> item and sell it for thousands of dollars. Pretty sure it'd just be a really big paperweight. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it was interesting because, I, I mean, I didn't know if there was a way to even use our projectors to show film. Like, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. And so the digital projectors don't play film. That's, That's a fun, fun fact. <laughs> now, you say, you say a film buyer, Tabitha. Mm -hmm. So when these movies come out, Take us through the steps of how you would be able to select movies for your theaters in Athens, Tennessee, <laughs> or is that yeah? Not Do we have like a buzzer where we can like um, myth bust here? Because it's a huge myth that we get to pick our movies. So the studios have all this extensive research that they've done over the years, and they basically have a little demographic that they send certain film to it's really archaic it does not work in modern times they are focused on a per screen average so they would rather have a movie on 10 screens and all 10 of those screens sell out so let's say there's 10 seats in all the theaters so we're going to sell out at 100 people but if they were to send that film to a hundred different locations and it's playing on all these different screens and there's only two people in each screen, you technically have more people in the movie, but they don't like that. They would rather have 10 screens that sold out versus 100 that only had two people in them, even though the numbers are much higher. And it just is an old archaic way of calculating their success. So... They don't send film just any or film. They don't send the print, the movie anywhere. They send it to these specific areas. So there are certain movies that are wide release that are going to go to 1,500 screens across the country. So that's pretty guaranteed that we're going to get most of the wide release, like your Marvel movies, your the big tentpole franchises like Fast and the Furious, um, Equalizer, like those kinds of things are huge. They're going everywhere. But then you have a lot of these more middle budget, kind of limited, a little bit of a niche kind of film. We might get it. We might not. And so it's it's really frustrating because sometimes people have a specific, like lately there's been a Liam Neeson movie that's out apparently. Mm -hmm. And people have asked about it. And when I asked our film buyer, she said it was a very small release. And so it's like, frustrating because there might be people that want to watch it but we just they they won't let you f they call it stacking so we have five movies because we have five screens they won't let us have 10 movies and split them across the screens okay. so it's it's basically you're tied into the number of screens that you have so these big multiplexes they don't necessarily have 20 movies but they have more access to play more show times of the other movies so on let's say on average pick something go back a little bit i think we saw it here uh the indiana jones mm -hmm. latest movie mm -hmm. or tom cruise's mission impossible is there a time frame that you decide you show it no. like two weeks three weeks we have another here's another myth buster for you but no we actually 
Every week, my film buyer calls me. It's usually on a Monday. And she has spoken with the studios, and the studios don't work well together. So they're really defensive about letting their films go, even if it's not performing well. But they just don't want to give the screen up for someone else. So Universal doesn't want to let Disney come in with something. But she will tell us, you know, for example, okay, this week, new Equalizer, you're going to lose Strays open equalizer and usually they have a two-week minimum but some of them are gonna have like avatar had a i don't remember what the exact term was but they required us to play higher amount of 3d movies because james cameron had made this in 3d specifically in this format so they had a a writer in our agreement that said you will play a higher percentage of 3D shows for the first three weeks. And then after that, it was able to go down. Usually it's a week-by-week basis. The problem happens when, like this summer, when there was new movies all the time, you can't keep them for six weeks. You just don't have room because you have to bring in Indiana Jones. And then the next week is Mission Impossible, so you have to make room for them. So you might lose something that's performing fairly well just to make space. But generally there's a two week minimum, but most big movies we might get to keep four or five weeks. It just depends on the time of year and what else is coming out. But as as one is here, are you reporting back to somebody, a buyer, stats review people mm-hmm. that says every night movie palace does this? There's a, it used to be a call-in system where you would have to call in your box office reports every single night. It's also gone digital and our point of sale system does it automatically. So the ticket sales are reported. It's actually public knowledge. It's a company called Comscore. So people can get on, you know, like Monday morning, you always have those headlines, like this was the biggest three-day opening of all time. And that's where, that's where that information is coming from. All of our ticket sales are getting reported back wow. nightly. But if you get, if I'm hearing you correctly, if you get, let's say, just pick one, Indiana Jones, and you're here rocking and rolling with that Mm -hmm. show, and you can do your time. You do have control over the time of showing, I hope. (laughs) Like during the day? Yeah, I mean, like today. Like our show times? No. They actually will require us to play their movie a certain number of times and at certain times of the day. So I actually got in trouble with Indiana Jones. I probably shouldn't put this on the record, but we had a private group that had reserved. They wanted to have a little event with um, their people that they invited in. And we do private showings. Like that's not something that we haven't done. The problem was this particular weekend that they wanted us to do this, we had a bunch of really long movies. And when you have longer movies, not only is it really annoying for the customer who is now stuck in an auditorium for three and a half hours and they don't (laughs) want to miss anything, but for us, it cuts into the amount of times that we can show this movie. Uh So this group had scheduled their showtime for, I think it was 12 o'clock on a Saturday, which is typically not a problem, but the movies were so long that it meant we lost a showtime. And I think it was Disney and I think it was Indiana Jones. They checked our show times and realized that there was a time period that other movies were playing that theirs was not playing. Oh so we had to get really creative and and figure out how to wedge another one in there just to make sure that all of the studios had four show times that day. 
And so there's a little flexibility in it. Like they don't come in and say this movie has to play at 1130. But if I I couldn't rent you a theater for your podcast listeners at seven o'clock on a Friday because they're going to notice that something's missing. Uh, so I guess you have movie police. Somewhere. Basically, they will send checker. They send film checkers in to make sure that you're playing the right trailers, that you're playing like they have proper placement on their posters. Um, there's kind of like secret shopper things. You don't know they're coming. Um, they just pop in and have little forms that you have to sign. So they will do that to you. They check our show times. Some of them are a little more strict than others, and some of them, it depends on what's coming out. So if there's something bigger, they might be a little more um, aware. They're also really strict about the billing process, which is another point of frustration for us. Um, we pay them based on those ticket sales that are reported to them. So they come back to our film buyer and give us terms for their film. So it might be that Disney wants 67% of the Indiana Jones ticket sales. So every week we're supposed to send them a check for this 67%. So when you do the math on a $6 movie ticket, that means we're keeping like a $1.30 something of this movie ticket. So for every ticket sold, we only keep less than half of it so then every week they have their little account managers that check into our account and see if we owe them money the fun thing is they will change that percentage based on how well the film did and they expect us to pay this difference so let's pretend that you're going to rent this room out and use it for your podcast. And I say, okay, that's great. I'm gonna charge you $100 every time you film. Let's say you come in and you set up with your next guest and I walk in and say, you know what? I think I want $200 for it this time. And you've already paid me the 100, so you think you have access to the space. If in this movie studio scenario, you would have to pay me that $200 before I let you use this space. Because you're doing this on a weekly basis, it might be the Wednesday night before the movie opens that they tell you that you owe them this percentage. A 1% difference could be as little as $20. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a huge, now in a bigger movie, 1% is huge. But if it were just, you know, a 10 or 15, I mean, we've had to mail them like a 67 cent check before. And it's, <laughs> it's frustrating because they want you to send it to a lockbox the studios are all on the west coast so even if you overnight these checks which is not usually an option because if they don't come back to me until let's say it's the last thing they do on their day on wednesday so they're walking out of the office at 6 p.m it's nine o'clock here the banks are closed so even if i go in first thing thursday morning they're in bed it's five o'clock there so they're not going to come into the office until eight or nine which is 11 or 12 here, which means our showtimes have already started. So there's been a lot of times where we have a hostage situation. I have a blog on our website about it, how we basically are being told by the studio that we owe them money and they will not give us the keys to play the film that night. So the studios are very hands-on in the whole process, not just when you play, they tell you if you play, they, you know, it's, it's a lot. I had no idea. It all came, and I guarantee you the listeners don't either. 
So how many studios do you have a contract with to show movies? Um, there's a lot of studios. That's actually, there's a few, I can't remember because a lot of them have sort of combined. Um, Disney bought Fox, so that went under their umbrella. A lot of them combine and move, and sometimes some of the studios pop up just for a particular purpose. Like a director may have his own studio that's mm-hmm. for this one movie. So we deal with Disney, Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony. Those are pretty much your big ones that we're going to have something. Lionsgate's has some big ones. They don't have as many, but your big ones are Disney, Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony. So the majority of movies in this country, I don't pay much attention mm-hmm. to when Who they flash all mm-hmm. up. So they're just kind of under smaller, huge umbrellas mm-hmm. that you have to deal with. Uh, we deal with the big ones. Um, some of the smaller things, like a lot of the faith-based movies come from really small, just sort of niche studios, like I was saying, that kind of open for a particular purpose. Um then last night we actually had a an event that was kind of unique to everyone but a small studio has produced a film and they're filming an Amazon TV series around the release of this movie and they contacted us about using our space for to to do the screening and this Q&A and film this TV show and so I was speaking with the director and and they actually have the same struggles as us because these small studios just there's no room for them in the market and the bigger studios are going to block them because we can't give up their show times even if I wholeheartedly believe in helping the little man if the big studio won't give me the space to do that I can't show that film so you know people make movies and they exist all over the place you just can't always find room for them well and i had just a research on another podcast i was doing the sound of freedom mm-hmm. through the angel studios mm-hmm. and that's what you're speaking of because if i got my research correct three brothers kind of run all of that mm-hmm. they did the chosen which you know certainly our audience would know about mm-hmm. uh, and then they've got another one i think coming out in 2025 so that kind of a studio though you could make a contract Mm-hmm. We have, yeah. hopefully. We have the access to do it. And sometimes a lot of those, like Sound of Freedom was brilliantly marketed. They had a whole oh. ploy of, I mean, it worked out really well for that studio. They've made a, a really big splash for such a small budget situation. They had other people buy movie tickets so that oh. a lot of people that came, came for free, but the ticket had already been paid for. And they did a really strong marketing campaign about the message of the film saying that you can make an impact on this particular topic by going to the movie. And it may be true. I'm sure that that studio, they have ties to, they feel very passionate about this. But you're never going to see Disney saying you're going to save the earth if you come watch this National Geographic documentary. And it's the same concept, but they were just able to market it in a way that put them on the map. So they should have an easier time getting into some of these theaters, but a lot of them won't. You know, you have a small budget horror movie that you might get in three theaters, but even if it does well and sells out every theater that you're in, you've still only made a small splash. 
So it's it's possible for small studios to get in. It's still just very difficult. Do you find that customers fuss at you because you don't have a movie? Oh, absolutely. I actually, the first year we were open, there was, I think it was a faith-based film that we didn't get. And it was because at the time, this the market research from the studio said that we did not have the audience for it. Because all of the faith-based movies that we had shown were crickets. I mean, we had nobody showing up for them. Mm-hmm. And this one particular film had been, again, kind of like the Angel Studios thing. They had marketed it in a way that it activated a specific demographic that was very engaged. And we didn't get it because the studio decided not to. At the time, because we were so new, there was a very big confusion about how we got our films. So it became this propaganda that I had personally decided not to show this film because I was anti-Christian. And this big thing went around Facebook and I was so confused and hurt. I mean, I went to a private Catholic school. Like, I mean, I don't know what you, what should I do? But um, people thought that it was me trying to prevent them from having access to God's word. And I was so frustrated because at the end of the day, every movie is made to make money. Mm-hmm. And the studios might have the best message in the world. I mean, even a lot of the Disney movies teach kids, you know, how to deal with grief and anger. And they're great messages. But at the end of the day, they care about the money that it brings in to pay for it. So I I don't care what the content of the film is as long as the people are coming in and buying popcorn. I don't even need them to buy the movie tickets. I need them to buy the popcorn. <laughs> And so it's, it's, it's tough because I think it's, it's such a heavily corporate industry. Most of the theaters we deal with are corporations of a mag, like huge magnitude. And then there's us, this tiny little five screen theater. So it's not necessarily easy to distinguish between the, the two. You know, you're just used to going in for the movie experience. You don't really stop and think about it being a small business. Wow. Goodness. All right. I'm going to get you back for a second episode as we move forward <laughs> in the technology okay. I'm learning about. More about this. And, and our listeners, I know, are going to be delighted to hear this because this is brand new information. Uh, I've been around watching movies, as you can imagine, since mm-hmm. I was five years old of any size. And we were talking the other day about the old Saturday morning mm-hmm. cereals for 25 cents in a box top of something, mm-hmm. you know. So it's exciting to see you as a part of this, but I also can hear the frustration because I think most of us feel, mm-hmm. well, Tabitha runs a theater. She's got all that she can do. She can decide this. She can decide that. And obviously from this interview that is not true folks so if you'll agree to come back with me and go to technology the new developments and things and then to follow up on this that occurred here this week in in your theater Mm -hmm. i think it's awesome but it's just been a really big treat for me to talk to you and learn about this stuff and promise me you'll come back i will and you'll say hi to dad if i don't see you of course (laughs) that'll be great thank you so much and Folks, uh, as uh, heard, you need to be getting ready. So when we release this one in three or four weeks, uh, you're going to hear this information. Then we're going to do it again. Uh, Just awesome 
Awesome. Thank you. And as I say to each and every one of you, I hope you have a safe and healthy day. And I'll see you a little further up the road.